Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are back for season two of Queen of the Sciences. After a little hiatus, we hope you enjoyed the bonus episodes, but are eager to hear some conversations between a theologian and her dad starting up once again. So we thought we would get this new season off to a rollicking start with a favorite topic, namely the crucifixion. It is striking that when we say the crucifixion, we always mean Jesus' crucifixion. It is in itself um, a world historical event different from all the other and unfortunately very many crucifixions that took place during Roman's time. So before we get into all of the the details and some particular things about it we wanted to lift up, Dad, I just want to throw a really general question to you. What is going on here with our Christian faith that we worship a guy who was killed in the most horrible manner possible? Why, why would that be someone who is worthy of worship in any respect? Well, I think St. Paul uh, makes that point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, doesn't he? When he writes, consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise, not many wealthy, not many well-born. God has chosen the weak things of the world, the foolish things, indeed nothing at all, in order that he may bring to naught the things that are. The uh, self-identification of God with the crucified is an undermining, a radical penetration and undermining of the existing regime. And it's a breakthrough, if it can indeed be such, by that we'd have to talk about the resurrection of the crucified one, which is exactly what the resurrection establishes, God's self-identification with the crucified one as father to son. That would then portend the coming of a new regime, what Jesus proclaimed as the reign of God. So we'll turn to the resurrection in a later episode this season, because that's the the fitting counterpart to this one. But I think what's really important for us to establish today is that without the resurrection, there is absolutely zero reason to see anything of value in Jesus. In fact, that is the whole point of a crucifixion, to render a person of absolutely zero value, in fact, of no humanity whatsoever. And it's only that pairing, this, you know, a glorious vindication in the resurrection has to be of this person who is of just complete worthlessness. Exactly. The crucifixion is the the statement of utter devaluation, depersonalization, abandonment, forsakenness, betrayal, denial. Yeah. So I think what we'll try to do today is is kind of recapture that. Um, one thing about being 2,000 years after this event is that it's very easy, almost impossible actually not to, to see the cross as a naturally religious symbol. It's so deeply identified for us with religion, but that is as opposite as possible of how it was perceived and experienced at Jesus' time. So one of the things we have to do in our, our proclamation is recapture the the alienation, the off-puttingness, the revulsion that was associated with the cross at the time. Well, I, I remember as a seminary student many, many years ago, this point was driven home to me in an essay by the New Testament theologian Ernst Kaseman, who pointed out that um, Everything else that's said about Jesus in the New Testament, you can find parallels in the contemporary worlds of Judaism and Hellenistic religions. Uh, But what sticks out as specific and unique to the proclamation of Jesus Christ 
is his cross, his crucifixion. Uh, that's the thing that distinguishes Jesus Christ from all the other gods and liberators and saviors and mythical figures of Greco-Roman and, and Jewish religion of the time. Yeah, it's interesting. You often will hear people say, and a, a way to like devalue Christianity is say, well, there's lots of myth, myths of gods who die and rise again. So therefore, there can't be anything special about Jesus. But yes, there are lots of stories about, about gods or remarkable men who die, but they don't die like this. This is, they, <laughs> they die in some more kind of heroic way or quiet way or peaceable way, but not this screaming in agony. Why have you forgotten? forsaken me, God, on the cross kind of way. So in preparation for this, I read a very short little volume called Crucifixion by Martin Hengel, a a German theologian, um, which is mainly about um, Greek and Roman sources on crucifixion, what they said. So an interesting starting point is that there isn't all that much about crucifixion in these sources, precisely because it was so embarrassing even to admit that it was going on. Like the fact that this was even happening is not something a cultured, literate Greek or Roman would want to talk about. It was beneath their contempt, maybe also a little bit, you know, there must have been enough moral revulsion to think like, you know, this this isn't really in the best of taste, but what else can you do with slaves? And that was the other thing about it is that crucifixion was not used for Roman citizens. One of the, one of the benefits, I suppose, of becoming a Roman citizen is that if you were going to die or be executed, it wouldn't be like that. Uh, there were other options. I mean, not wonderful. Um, but crucifixion was for non-citizens. It was primarily for slaves or people already ranked pretty low on the humanity scale. And it seems that the purpose of it was really to mark you outside of, of any... In fact, it, it, it's really the opposite of redemption in every way. And again, that's hard for us to wrap our minds around because for us, the cross is so associated with redemption. But if you could think of a, a better symbol of um, of non-redemption, I mean, that the, the cross was the ultimate thing. Oh, yeah. The Roman author who expresses this thought is Cicero. Cicero someplace writes about crucifixion as being a revolting and disgusting matter that polite people don't discuss. It's beyond the pale of civilized conversation even. And exactly right, it, it, it's a punishment reserved to the rebell, rebellious slaves like the famous Spartacus who led the rebellion uh, some uh, in the century before Christ. I can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, later. sure. I mean, I think maybe other than Spartacus, we don't actually know the name of any single crucified person besides Jesus. That's how effective crucifixion was wiping them off the the human map, so to speak. We just don't know anyone else because mm-hmm. the whole point of crucifixion is to take away your name, your identity, your humanity. Let me read this passage to you, Sarah. This is from a biography of Julius Caesar. And Caesar turned into an expert crucifier. Julius Caesar did. Oh, I didn't know that. When he put... Yeah, when he put down a, a rebellion um, in Gaul, he conquered Gaul, but he did so by making alliances with uh, Gaulish uh, tribes. And when some tribes rebelled against them, he put them down, resorting to uh, crucifixion. And this is what the author, by name Philip Freeman, uh, r- writes about crucifixion. Quote, crucifixion was among the cruelest punishments ever devised. It was used earlier by the Carthaginians, but the Romans employed crucifixion on a wide scale. It was always considered poor taste to discuss it in proper society. 
Crucifixion was strictly a punishment for criminals and slaves being designed as much for torture and terror as killing. A condemned man would first be flogged to humiliate and weaken him, then forced to pick up a heavy wooden beam called a patibulum. When he had reached the prison yard or an out-of-the-way spot on the edge of town, the prisoner was stripped naked and fastened to the beam with nails and cords. He was then hauled by ropes to the top of a sturdy pole driven deep into the ground. Sometimes there was a small seat for the tortured man to sit on, but even so the prisoner normally suffered in agony for days until finally succumbing to exhaustion and shock. Suetonius writes without irony when he says that Caesar mercifully cut the throats of the pirates before hanging each one on a cross, period, end quote. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, I think that really the emphasis on the extended torture is really important. I, we, I suppose we think that crucifixion kills you pretty quick because Jesus died relatively quick. It seems that he did because he was beaten so badly before he was crucified and so was already so physically compromised that he couldn't hold up as long on the cross. But three to four days was not uncommon. Um, along those lines, another interesting, horrifying, interesting detail I picked up is that um, the position that the body is in on a cross makes it almost impossible to exhale. And the only way you could exhale is basically by either pushing up with your feet or straining at your wrists, which of course have nails driven through them. So your body is in a constant war between two equally terrible horrors not being able to breathe and yanking at the you know pierced flesh that is that is nailed to the cross yeah. and so it, that in the end the the growing weight and your inability to sustain it actually suffocates you so in a sense even though obviously you're the victim of someone nailing you to the cross and hoisting you up there actually your own body kills itself by its own weight and its own need to breathe yeah yes obviously it's not simply um, the termination of physical life. It is the shameful and humiliating termination, uh, extermination of a human life. It's erasure from the land of the living in every respect. Yeah, there's nothing no, nothing honorable or noble about it. So this is what really struck me in reading this, is trying to re-access this shame element. Because I have to say, I never really thought much about that. Um, you know, the pain is kind of what, uh, not surprisingly, gripped my imagination. Um, though, as uh, Fleming Rutledge points out in this magnificent book she recently published called The Crucifixion, which is a, a theological study, um, she points out that um, the Gospels convey almost no physical details of the crucifixion. Now, in part, that's because people at the time knew perfectly well what it was, had probably seen one, and therefore did not need to be told their imaginations and memories were more than sufficient, but also that the the direction of of um, concern or focus is not as much on the pain as on the shame. Um, the the blood, of course, is an important motif. We'll get to that later. But I was trying to like put myself, imagine my way into what kind of what what the shame means. Um, and it struck me first of all. I wonder if it's hard for me to instantly access the feeling of shame toward a tortured victim because of Christianity itself, of 2,000 years of this vindicated, tortured person, so that if I were to imagine now 
a victim of torture and a torturer, my feelings of shame and revulsion would be directed towards the torturer rather than the tortured person. Or at least I think that's the case. That's my at least moral instinct. But I think that has to have been shaped by Christianity. It can't be a natural reaction. I think the natural human reaction would be to look at the victim and say, oh my God, what did you do to deserve that? Well, even even if you don't have to moralize it that much, it's just animal revulsion. It's seeing a tortured, mangled body uh, and a, a soul driven out of it uh, on, on its life's edge. You know, there's just, I, I had this experience as, as a pastor, you know, uh, visiting people uh, sick and dying in the hospital. There's just a very basic animal reaction you have to seeing someone in the in their death throes, um, and there's a a tendency to just want to avert the eyes and turn away and, and not take it in. You know, um, I think that's kind of a animal instinct uh, to be re- revolted, to be repelled uh, at seeing uh, such a degradation. Uh, I remember reading a passage in Augustine in which he talks about the separation of body and soul that takes place in, in, in one's, uh, a human's death throes. And he has the same kind of description that uh, this is such a, uh, a wrenching experience, not just for the dying one, but for those who behold the dying. And when all of that natural revulsion is accentuated by this deliberate terrorism, uh, which is designed to uh, trigger the revulsion instinct and, and impress it upon the witnesses. And I think that accounts for what we're saying. Yeah, I'm sure that in part my feeling of, of um, revulsion towards the torture rather than the tortured is partly because I've just never seen it myself and that actually being yeah. in the presence of it would bring things out of me that um, have happily not yet been activated in my sheltered existence. Well, what I what I got to in my thought experiments were um, three cases where I could I could imagine uh, better the shame involved. So one was sexual assault, not in the sense of you know blame the victim for what she or even he you know brought on themselves, but that that uh, you know if I if I for example had been the victim of like just say a a physical assault with no sexual components, I don't think I, I don't think I would be so afraid about talking it in public you know for people's reaction you know in fact. Maybe I'd want to talk about it and, you know, be able to air that out and get comfort and sympathy. But I think if I were the victim of a rape or sexual assault of some kind, that is not something that I would broadcast. Um, Even if I desperately needed sympathy and healing, I would not want it to be generally known because I would be convinced that it would change how people felt about me, that there would be some shame or sense of profanation attached to my body that could be never shaken off. So I think there must be some analog of that in what crucifixion was trying to do to people. Well, I think, you know, that's, uh, that's, I think that's really insightful because granted that there were, there is some historical knowledge of women being crucified, but predominantly the victims of crucifixion, of course, were men, males. And the corresponding instrument of intimidation and terror to the crucifixion of rebellious uh, male slaves would be the rape of women. I mean, that was, that's been an instrument of war and terror from time immemorial. Yeah. So there's something about the crucifixion that's intended to be a form of, of rape. I mean, really, um, whether or not there's an overtly sexual component, it's that, that violation, the, the <laughs> undesirable penetration of a human body apart, quite apart from its will and desire. 
Yeah, and well, the the stripping. All the reports tell us that stripping the victim naked as they're hoisted upon the pole is an essential part of the um, of the humiliation, so that their genitals are exposed to public. Yeah, view. for all of our our Christian art that shows the the cross, that is, a, he, there's always a discreet loincloth in place. We're we're not showing yeah, right. that. I, I can't say I'm sorry about that, but it's it's <laughs> it's good to know um, how extreme the humiliation went. Another one, more another example. I was just trying to think of of a shame oriented death as I. I brought to mind an image of somebody kicked to death in a back alley with their face mangled beyond recognition and then left in a dumpster. I think there's something um, about that. Maybe the dumpster somehow, we know that bodies get left in dumpsters, that somehow has none of the nobility of the cross that the cross does for us after all these years of Christian art and worship. But it's just like, you are garbage. That, that, they think that, that that's the point. The cross is really declaring to the world, this person is total garbage. Yeah. And you know, uh, historically too, in crucifixions, the victims were off, often left uh, on the cross, not taken down precisely in order to expose their dead bodies to the birds of prey, the uh, vultures and so forth, or, or the dogs, you know. And this, too, is violates a profound taboo, uh, a human taboo. Our custom of burying the dead goes back to primitive times when we didn't want the bodies of our loved ones to be devoured by coyotes or wolves or you know, uh, vultures or whatever. And so quite deliberately, crucifixion would leave the the victim hoisted on the stake after death to be picked apart by the animals of prey. Yeah, actually, that comes up a lot in the Old Testament. There's a recurring threat is that the birds of prey will eat your flesh because you won't be buried. That is a very primal horror. I also remember in a in a variant on the Apostles' Creed among the Maasai people, I believe, of East Africa, one of their tenets of faith regarding Jesus after his death is that the hyenas did not get him. That was the the predatory animal that would, you know, take away a dead body. So, yeah, that that sense of the flesh itself being, you know, and not like quickly picked clean. I know there are some cultures that leave bodies to be stripped by vultures, but I get the impression it's a, a swifter and cleaner process, not a gradual, you know, bit by bit crows taking a, an eyeball here and an, you know, fingernail there. Um, and then the third example I came up with, um, this is because I just, uh, for the first time in my life, actually read through an entire biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I read the one by um, Schlingensiepen. And um, one thing that I didn't fully realize while reading this is that he probably didn't have the swift and noble death that I think I saw depicted in a movie once where, you know, he steps forward and says his final prayer and, you know, goes up and is hanged and then it's over. Um, and that, that was very striking to me because somehow, even though hanging is by no means wonderful, there was something noble in the, my mental image of Bonhoeffer's death. But what I learned from this biography is that probably what happens, um, there is no um, 
direct um, evidence, but we know what the Nazis generally did, and we know that there was a doctor there who was probably trying to cover up what he actually did, which is that Bonhoeffer and the other people with him were hanged, but not quite enough to kill them, and then this Nazi doctor basically kept them alive as long as he could so that they would suffer um, as much as possible until finally their bodies gave it up and they died. And... um, I have to say, the mental image of the heroic Bonhoeffer in my mind suddenly having to go through six hours of torture and what his body must have looked like, what his body must have done involuntarily, things he might have said. You know, he was always so faithful and stoic. You know, did he plead for mercy in the final hours? You know, was the pain so intense that he lost his mind? I did. I had this feeling of shame and revulsion, which I've never attached to that extremely lovable and admirable man. But that's what kind of gave me an an opportunity to have a, a better window into the shame aspect of crucifixion. I also discovered that Bonhoeffer was not admired until after Betka's biography came out. In fact, he was widely considered a traitor because he was working for Germany's downfall and even even in the post-war environment to separate out Germany from Nazism was <laughs> by no means an easy process and um, it it, it it took the the diligent efforts of his dear friend Eberhard Betke to rehabilitate him, um, which also gave me some as, uh, insight into the apostolic mission of trying to say, no, really, this crucified guy, he's amazing. He's the Lord of all. You know, how, how utterly bizarre <laughs> that must have sounded and, and just yeah. wrong, sick and wrong in so many ways. Uh, just a historical uh, footnote to what you said. We know for a fact that uh, Hitler ordered the those involved in the conspiracy to assassinate him, which was discovered after the failed assassination attempt in June of 1944, the conspirators to be hung with piano wire and their deaths to be uh, filmed for him. And he watched with glee the death by hanging with piano wire of these conspirators. He watched these films. He had them recorded. We know that's a historical fact. Wow. So you here you have coupled uh, to the, the sadism of the executioner uh, with the revulsion uh, and disgust it, the spectacle works upon all who witness it. Wow. I hardly even know what to say in response to that. The, the videos must have disappeared since then, huh? I I'm not sure about that. Uh, I don't I don't know. Maybe they maybe not. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Who knows who's guarding Hitler artifacts still? Well, anyway, um, so this I hope has given an entryway into not just the pain aspect, which is horrifying enough, but really specifically the shame aspect that surrounds crucifixion. And so let's move now into what does God have to do with any of this? Because it seems by definition, the point of the crucifixion is that God has nothing to do with it. God has departed this site and cannot possibly be in any way associated with the person on the cross. And if we think about, you know, I, I think the point here is that it's not just that Jesus had to die, but that Jesus died in this particular way. I mean, Socrates died, was killed, even publicly executed, but there's his his death is universally perceived as a noble one. <laughs> some years some years ago, Sarah, I had freshmen at Roanoke College read uh, the trial the the five uh, 
dialogues Plato wrote about the trial and death of Socrates, including the last one, the Phaedo, in which Socrates conducts a disquisition about the immortality of the soul, and then when the time comes, calmly uh, drinks the poison and tells his disciples to uh, not to mourn for him, but rejoice because his soul is flying away to heaven. And then compare that to the Gospel of Mark. And I remember an unforgettable student uh, writing an essay on the idea that Socrates was a much better Christian than Jesus. <laughs> wow. That really gets it right out there, doesn't it? Huh. It sure uh, does. Yeah. Wow. Because a, a true Christian faces death calmly and stoically, is that the idea? Right, as their soul flies away to heaven, leaving this prison house of the body behind. Right, right. But Jesus, you know, he's all freaked out and thinks God has abandoned him and he dies screaming. Yeah, yeah. How Christian is that? Right, right, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, let Dad start us off. What does God have to do with this cross, or if if we assume, let, let's just take as our starting point, because we're theologians here, that God does have something to do with this cross, that God opts to be aligned with this cross in some way. What does that mean and why? Let's grasp that the problem of the cross of Jesus, because of the man Jesus's relationship to the God of Israel, whom he addressed as Abba Father, and from whom he received the Holy Spirit for his mission. The death of this Jesus, with his relationships to his Abba Father God and to their Holy Spirit, the death of this Jesus raises the, acutely the question, what do you mean by G-O-D? Who or what is G-O-D? Now, this is exactly what was perceived in the Greco-Roman context. We have a graffiti from the second century of the Christian era found in Rome, which depicts uh, a kneeling man praying to a donkey hoisted on a cross, a crucified donkey. And the caption reads, Alexamenos worships his God. And so for the author of this graffiti, it was obvious that Oxymenos is a donkey worshiping a donkey because no god worth his divinity would be found hanging on a cross. An ass worshiping an ass. An ass worshiping an ass, a blind leading the blind, a fool following a fool. And so Christians are sometimes much too quick to sweep this profound issue problem under the rug. They want very quickly to turn, turn Jesus into Socrates. And they want very quickly to turn God into that otherworldly repository of immortal souls when they leave their mangled bodies behind where they belong on this musty earth. And nothing about connecting God with the crucifixion of Jesus permits those escapist theologies. Let's recognize that first of all. It seems to me that the, the sort of escapism that I hear most often theologically articulated um, works like this, that 
Jesus' crucifixion was simply showing or exposing something about human sin, but it wasn't actually doing anything. It wasn't God doing anything specifically. And so, you know, Jesus at most in this horrible death is is holding up a mirror to us to show the worst that we or maybe our states are capable of. But other than that, there can be no um, dirty hand involvement of God himself in, in this particular act. It's, it's purely, uh, like, like super painful pedagogy, but not, not in itself an act or an event that transforms or does or accomplishes anything. That statement, sir, is very, a very pregnant one for me. I mean, I think we have to work to give it some birth. It's difficult to do that, however, without remembering that the cross and the resurrection form a unity and that we only are speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus who lived an earthly life in relationship to his Abba Father and their Holy Spirit, uh, bringing the kingdom or reign of God near to the unworthy. We can only speak about the crucifixion of Jesus because in faith, we have adopted the perspective of his resurrection. I think this is even true historically. Karl Barth once said, but for the light of Easter morn, the cross would spread no shadow. In other words, crucified Jesus would just be like a thousand, ten thousand other sorry Jews of that epoch who revolted against Rome and were crucified a generation later at the siege of Jerusalem, just like 6,000 slaves under Spartacus whom Crassus had crucified and then on the Apian Way, crucified all along the Apian Way leading to Rome. The people that Nero crucified after the fire in Rome He had them crucified also on the Apian Way and doused their bodies with pitch and tar and then had them lit at night to light up the Apian Way, which he could view illuminated with burning crucified figures for miles down the road. Well, all those examples indicate that it would, it's not insane to simply associate the cross with an exposure of the absolute worst human beings are capable of. It's certainly not nothing less yeah, than that. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing less than that. But if that's all it is, why pick out the name Jesus? There's 6,000 who died in the Spartacus revolt by crucifixion. Tens of thousands of Jews uh, were crucified at the siege of Jerusalem a generation later. As I said, Nero crucified uh, enemies of the state. Why pick out Jesus? Why remember the life of Jesus that led him to this terrible fate? Why record that? Why remember that? And why then understand it to bear paradoxically the best of all possible news in a world so desperately in need of redemption? Yeah, so why? So why? <laughs> okay. But let's let's let, then then let's just realize that. Let's realize that what's at stake here is who and what you mean by GOD. And one very easy answer to the problem of GOD is again to uh, appeal to the contrast with Socrates 
the idea that God is simply, timelessly, unchangeably, immutably the one, the good, and we, distracted by temporal concerns, have lost sight of this transcendent goodness, and um, we cling to things here below in distraction from turning our gaze to the splendor of the one who's above and beyond it all. So Jesus's crucifixion is a kind of a disclosure event that shows us what we do in our distraction, in our inattention to heavenly things above. Truth be told, the Gospel of Luke sometimes seems to follow this kind of thinking. When Jesus is hoisted upon the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them. No, they know not what they do. They don't know what's really happening. And he dies not in agony, screaming the cry of dereliction, as in Matthew and Mark, but in Luke, he dies peacefully, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right. And likewise in John, it's the triumphant, it is accomplished, that finishes the story. Right. So we have a kind of a, a kind of a tension within the New Testament itself between Mark and Matthew, which want to, with Paul, stress the unmitigated shame of the cross as paradoxically the key to its transactional redemptive power. And John, Luke, and perhaps John also, wanting to say and said that the cross is a kind of a disclosure event that shows us how bad we can be in our sinfulness and how persistently loving God is even in the midst of our worst and most brutal sinfulness. Well, I think as you, you said before, that's not wrong as long as that's not the end of it. <laughs> it. It certainly is also the disclosure events, and it certainly is God bearing with us even in our evil ways. But if that is, if it's only illustrative, I think, you know, indeed, why, why single out Jesus? There's no particular reason to do that, certainly not to worship him. Right. There's got to be something, something God is accomplishing in permitting the death of his, by crucifixion of his son, in order then uh, for our sakes to raise precisely this one uh, from death's claim upon him and to vindicate the crucified one over against uh, the world which crucified him. But I think it's worth pointing out, and again, to, to further complexify it, it seems like if you're coming from, as, as Jesus and all of our New Testament writers did, from the milieu of the Old Testament, then the most logical conclusion to draw about what God is doing in Jesus' crucifixion is condemning Jesus very thoroughly and rejecting him. You, uh, Before we were recording, you alluded to the Deuteronomy passage, so I'm going to read that now. This is... Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's uh, obviously part of the Jesus getting quickly buried after his death, but also the idea that the man is not only cursed by God, but if you leave his body out there, you are actually bringing the curse upon the entire land. And that's obviously something that you don't want to do. And so the, the I think the striking thing, especially about Paul's testimony, is that he takes this, you know, completely logical, spiritual, monotheistic, devoted Israelites conviction about the person who was killed on the tree and says, yes, you're right. Jesus was indeed cursed by God. He did become a curse. So instead of turning away or trying to defend Jesus' reputation from that curse, Paul actually in Galatians claims it, like lays hold of it and says, this, this is actually what's going on in the cross. Yeah, and this is a neuralgic point in contemporary theology. And uh, you cited Fleming Rutledge uh, in her book, The Crucifixion, which is a very good book. And well, I think maybe you'll have some more things to say about this in a moment. But in an exchange of mail with Fleming some a year or two ago, uh, we did kind of have a, a, a kind of a discussion of this neuralgic point. Because she is very much of the opinion that any talk of satisfying the wrath of God or, or stilling the justice of God or Christ dying as a sin offering or anything like that is really bad news and we should just avoid it. It's much more of a redemptive event uh, in which our sin and death is victoriously conquered by the crucified and risen Christ. Uh, maybe you have a different view of that. Uh, you've studied her book carefully. Well, I, there, there's, I just will briefly say that she, I, as I recall at one point, she says that propitiation, which is the satisfaction of the wrath of God, is secondary and in a sense a byproduct of expiation, which is is removing the sin. So that by primarily removing the sin, our sin through Jesus cross, thereby God's wrath against that sin is satisfied. She is, I would say, though, it's important to say a defender of the notion of the wrath of God. It's not that she doesn't want to have that motif altogether. I, maybe in your conversation with her, it was maybe the, the over-focus on satisfying God's wrath that ends up making father and son like on different sides of an internal Godhead argument, which you do see in certain kinds of popular American Christianity. Right. There's also, you know, kind of a, um, a whipping boy of a lot of uh, mainline Protestants is the so-called penal theory of satisfaction, mm -hmm. or penal substitution or something mm -hmm. like that. What I want to uh, get at, though, is this uh, uh, point you were trying to make that something has to take place in the cross and resurrection of Christ for God to actually change the human predicament and to create uh, humanity anew. Uh, that uh, Gerhard Ferdi, I think, was right in this respect, at least, to stress what he called actual atonement, that actual atonement is something that happens when the cross is properly proclaimed as God's uh, judgment and justification of the sinner. So that's an event. That's something that happens in the crucifixion. It's not a symbol or pedagogy, but the thing itself is happening in the cross. Right. And in the proclamation of the cross, Ferdy would be quick, right. to, quick to say. In fact, he would be very reluctant 
to think that you can talk about the cross in isolation from preaching it, uh, because that that that's a theoretical discussion that he thinks uh, distances you from the actuality of atonement. Well, maybe I could uh, seize that idea and, and turn it to my own end, which is to say that you can't have the second article without the third article. But I would say the second article is the place you is the place of the cross and what it actually really does. And the third article is the place where the Holy Spirit, by the preaching of the cross, actually does in real time reclaim people to God through the crucified Jesus. Well said. Yes, I agree with that. We need to have a more, far more robust theology of the Holy Spirit uh, to even to make sense out of the second article of the Creed. But uh, let me just, just add one more thing. I think it is fair to say, though, that maybe what Ferdy is objecting to, and, and I, I certainly feel this, which is that it's too easy to get really stuck on the, but why did Jesus have to die or how did it work? Like the, as if there's some sort of like independence operating manual of the metaphysical universe where you could look up like, okay, fix in um, entry number one, crucify somebody. Okay. You know, and then like that somehow how explains everything. The idea that you can just have um, like a scientifically neutral description of the satisfaction of sin or whatever through a crucifixion divorced from the actual actual preaching and the Holy Spirit's work of bringing people to God through this event. I think maybe that's what he's trying to to, to um, reject. The trouble is, of course, he can't even make that rejection without his own theorizing. But that's another <laughs> okay. discussion. Let's. You, you were quoting Paul, uh, Christ became a curse for us. And I think that's really at the heart of this. Is humanity in an accursed state? You know, this is, I think, very difficult for modern Euro-Americans, Westerners, to deal with. We think that we are not fallen angels. We think that we are rising beasts. We think we've risen a very far away. We think that we're ready to conquer the heavens. We think, yes, we have our problems, but that's cultural lag and backwardness and primitive backward people who are resisting progress that's built into the very fabric of our history. We're just every day in every way getting a little bit better. And we are blind. I think we Western people are really blind to how many crucifixions we've affected in our rise to the top. We're blind to the dark side of our own history. We're blind to the fact that in these days when we kind of longingly think of the great days of President Barack Obama, that he was known at the time as the deporter-in-chief and the master of the predator drone assassination strikes. What is the dark side of our own progress that we're, we're so blind to that we don't see? If you were a Roman living in the time of Jesus, you would think these backward Jewish fundamentalists wanting to move society backward, don't they see the glory that is Rome? And don't they also, like Cicero, avert their eyes from the mountain of crucifixions on which the glory that was Rome was built? Yeah, and I, 
you don't even have to have such a world historical view. I think most people in their hearts or in their, even in their bodies, they feel the cursedness around in their lives. And if not, maybe just at the tangent and always threatening to come into their lives. And I suppose a lot of the evil we do is being all too aware of how quickly a curse is going to fall on us and trying to avert it and send it on someone else or at least somewhere else before it hits us. And if we're not presently cursed, we see cursed people around us. And what are you supposed to do with curse? people how are you supposed to engage with them bury them push them under the rug bury them just like the deuteronomy text says lest the pollution lest the curse spread to us yeah and i don't think we should like take it you know lightly like it's it's such a simple thing to to embrace the cursed person i mean if, if we take the words actually seriously a cursed person brings a curse with them they're hurt there's damage that you know radiates and sprays out of them all around them you know there's this yeah. is a not a uh, a simple problem to solve by just saying oh if we were more welcome and inclusive you know bring them in you know there's there's a reason why there is this revulsion and why we're always terrified of getting infected by the curse ourselves you know that their their bad luck somehow starts accumulating to us as well yes yes i agree let's so let's let's we've we've kind of unpacked this idea that the crucifixion was a form of execution that was terroristic meaning to humiliate and shame uh, not only the victim but all witnesses of the victim and that it was now this shameful form of death is somehow to be positively connected to the God of the gospel. And you raise the question, so why did Jesus have to die, die in this particular way? Why was that necessary? My great seminary professor, Robert Bertram, always taught us in, in theology to ask the question, uh, which he learned from Philip Melanchthon in the article of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 4, why is Christ necessary? Why a crucified Christ is necessary, not merely optional, but indeed necessary to God's redemptive purposes of blessing and, and peace upon the lost creation. And it's because I mean, the quick answer, it's because it was not simply Christ who was accursed, but he entered a world that is under this accursedness, a world uh, that is lost uh, from God and therefore filled with uh, violence. So I guess the obvious question would be then, so how does this make it better for God to get as as messed up as all of uh, as we are? Yeah, there's a disclosure event, but the disclosure is that uh, we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. That's the disclosure. And so far as the illumination is concerned, it's an absolutely critical illumination. If one does not come to this true self-knowledge, Calvin began the Institutes by saying self-knowledge and knowledge of God are correlative. A true self-knowledge and true knowledge of God go together. And that true self-knowledge is to know oneself as fallen under the curse. On a, Now, see, this gets read, taken in a very individualistic way, as though I'm a piece of crap or a piece of dirt or something like that. That's not the point at all. The point is rather uh, that as, a, as precisely as... Um, a human being made in the image of God in order to attain likeness to God, 
I've filled up that image, which I am, with all sorts of unlikeness to God. And I live in a world that perpetuates unlikeness to God, a world that is uh, bursting at the seams with its own self-caused destructiveness. So I think, I mean, that that does advance the the disclosure events, not in a sort of like calm kind of way, but in the the pain of the self-knowledge kind of way. But I think it still leaves unaddressed the question of what it actually does, like what's actually happening there. And I guess my, my still my first instinct whenever this question comes is to think about Jesus being a curse for us and somehow... Um, well, like as Luther says in the Galatians commentary, not surprisingly, that what Jesus does is by deliberately aligning himself with sinners and criminals that he actually takes into his person, like somehow even into his body, all the sin and sins that have ever been committed. And there's a sense, and I think you get this out of uh, Romans 3.25 too, where, where Paul says that, you know, there was a... a, a reasonable cause for grievance against God that he continually forgives because, okay, forgiveness is great for the, you know, the sinner who wants it, but it doesn't really do much for the the victims of the sin, right? And that actually God's justice, God's righteousness is shown in, in his taking full responsibility. So that's, that's for me, that's the image of his into Christ's body come all of human evil and that God as, that there's a unity here, that God as creator is taking responsibility for all the evil that is the body byproduct of his creation and in taking it into himself, that is how he is redeeming and then ultimately sanctifying his people, that there is not just solidarity or identification, but actually responsibility, ultimate responsibility falls on God for all evil. And I think that is such a, to me, that is a tremendous and breaks out of all of the, um, the, you know, understandable, but sometimes petty complaints of like, how dare God create a world with evil in it or whatever, you know, and just stands by and watches us suffer. In the cross, God is not standing by and letting the evil happen, but is is fully receiving in the most maximal and horrible way, the full penalty, the full punishment, the full responsibility for, for evil and sin. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and of course, it would be a very truncated Christian theology without benefit of the unity of the triune God that would think that God the Father in heaven, uh, ontologically other than his human son Jesus on earth, loads all his wrath and punishment on this on poor Jesus in order to sat, uh, to restore his honor and therefore get into position to be merciful uh, to Jesus' human followers. What a horrible uh, uh, distortion of the New Testament gospel, something like that. Oh, yeah. I I learned from Luther that none of this works if Jesus isn't as divine as he is human. That it's... The charge of, like, divine child abuse would be legitimate if Jesus were not divine. So... But I would say, therefore, all the more reason to affirm Jesus' true divinity, and therefore that, as you said, it, it messes with our notion of G.O.D., because that means G.O.D. is someone who can take human flesh and can take suffering and can take punishment into himself and upon himself and freely and willingly does so. And above all, as you said, quoting Luther, uh, Jesus is above all a sin bearer rather than simply being a punishment bearer. The gospel is not in the first place 
Jesus took the rap for me, therefore I get off scot-free. <laughs> Is that a song you sang growing up? <laughs> yeah, right. The, the gospel is that my sin, my hurt, my injuries that I have caused to the world, myself, and others, those sins are taken from me by the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. He bears my sin, and therefore I am redeemed from the ultimate consequences of that sin, which he in his own person experienced in his cry of dereliction, the judgment of God upon the sinfulness of the world, not just out there, the world out there, but my world, the world that I've created in my life and so forth. So uh, the idea that Jesus is a sin bearer, first and foremost, not a punishment bearer, but a sin bearer, is crucial, crucial, I think, to this distinction between expiation and propitiation that you talked about earlier. Uh, because otherwise we fall into that trap of, of, of God putting the wrap on Jesus so that we get off scot-free or something like right, that. Right, right. Well, and I, I think we can draw the, the connection here to the, you know, for lack of a better term, the spiritual life or the psychological impact of the preached gospel of the crucified Jesus, which is that, you know, in, in everyone's life, you experience all the ways in what not only you have done, but what the people around you have done, like around you and to you and with you, you know, what your parents have done, your grandparents, you know, the family dynamics that, that go on and uh, even how your own behaviors, there's, you know, the so-called concept of sunk costs that the more you participate in something, the less likely you are to give it up. And that applies to sin as much as anything else. So there's this cumulative historical weight of sin in your own life. How on earth can you ever break out of it? I mean, that's the you know ideal of psychotherapy or something is to, is to set you free. But I, I think what you can make a connection here to, um, again, not discounting the cosmological level of what's going on, but is that if Jesus really can bear your sin away and just take it off of you and say, you can't have this anymore. You have no more right to your own sin. It is out of your life. You are set free. You, you don't have to repeat this pattern anymore. When you see exactly, yeah. you don't you don't have to break out of your sinfulness. You have Jesus has to break in right, to your right. sinfulness. That's really well put, right. right? And that actually, and you see this in people who have especially powerful conversion experiences, is exactly that sense of I don't have to continue anymore. It has been taken away from me. I mean, I think it's no mistake that the most beloved, probably uh, English language hymn in America, is "Amazing Grace," and I think people love it without even knowing the story behind it. Is that it was written by a slave trader after he had been converted and realized the horror that he had been. And perpetuating. And, um, you know, there's there's no like lightly forgiving a slave trader for what he's did and saying, oh, you were mistaken in your youth, you know, um, you know you, but it's okay now. You've seen the error of your ways. No, you actually need something, I think, as, as um, bloody and shameful and horrible as God on the cross taking responsibility for a world in which slave trading can take place that could even you know, could possibly make it okay for a slave trader to go on and have a new life. And interestingly enough, it's that um, slow cultural revolution that you alluded to at the beginning of our talk today that has been affected in our history. Uh, let me just make a couple of connections here. Crucifixion was outlawed by 
the Emperor Constantine in the year 337. Now, does that mean states stopped persecuting and torturing people? No. But just like the memory of the exodus from Egypt was the leaven that leavened the cultural lump, so also the crucifixion of Jesus worked like a leaven, uh, leavening the cultural lump, illuminating the inhumanity of slavery and the uh, anti-humanity of death by crucifixion. And slowly, slowly, these values have been uh, reversed and turned on their head. That great modern pagan, whom we're going to have a podcast about because he's so stimulating and interesting, Friedrich Nietzsche, remarked about the cross, God on a cross, the transvaluation of all hitherto prevailing values. Yeah, yeah. God on a cross, the transvaluation of all hitherto prevailing values. And he didn't mean that as a compliment, did he? No, he said, let's get back to those good old pagan values. <laughs> well, and we've seen right. we've seen in the 20th century those who tried to do precisely that and the, the bloodiness and dehumanizing of their ethic. You know, and a, another negative example that I want to bring up of the same cultural phenomenon. I learned in preparing for this podcast today that the word crusade uh, comes ultimately derives from the word cross. And it's because the crusaders had emblazoned on their uh, breastplates a red oh, cross. Sure. And so they... They were the, they were called the Crusaders in derivation from the insignia of the cross that they wore. <laughs> so this shows you that the emblem of the cross can actually be flipped and turned into the opposite of its real meaning, that Crusaderism. And, of course, this is why some extreme uh, uh, Muslims have picked up this image of the Western Crusader and taken such offense at the uh, Christian cross as an emblem of crusaderism. Now, this is, I, you know, I, I just think negative evidence that when we detach the symbol of the cross, as we've explained today, meaning here, once and for all in human history, God takes the sin of the world and his just judgment upon the sin of the world onto himself in the person of his crucified son. If that's what the symbol of the cross really means, then how urgent it is to preach and teach and explain this meaning against these diabolical ripoffs like crusaderism. The theologian, late theologian George Lindbeck, a uh, very much beloved man among those who were his students, in his book, The Nature of Doctrine, had this marvelous little parable. He asks that when the crusader lops off the infidel's head with the sword and shouts, Christ is Lord, is it a true statement? And he says no. Yeah, he says no, it's not, because it betrays that the crusader has no idea who Jesus, who Christ actually is. Well, I, I, actually, Lindbeck didn't answer the question. He just let it hang. <laughs> of course, I think he was obviously implying what you said, Sarah. I think that's obviously what, where he wants readers to take it. But he really let them think through 
can you state kind of neutrally and objectively Jesus is Lord no matter what context in which that statement is made? And I think his parable shows, no, you can't. There's got to be some sort of conformity between the objective content, crucify Jesus as Lord, and the cruciform form of the of the true martyr witness who attests right. that. That's one thing I really found valuable at Fleming Rutledge's volume is that she says the cross does not interpret itself. It needs it needs interpretation. It is not a clear and unmistakable symbol, however much we just instantly associate it with Christianity now. It can be taken in any number of ways, as we've reviewed. Well, we are going to continue to unpack these issues because in our next episode, our topic will be poor Anselm much reviled theologian of the atonement, but we're going to try to give him his fair due. So till next time. Till next time. See you later, alligator. <laughs> All right. You're a wild crocodile. Yeah, I know the response. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're done. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.